This week on Up in the Blue Seats, I answer your questions sent to me on Twitter. But more importantly, Larry Brooks and I do an interview together for the first time on the show as Rangers legend Brad Park joins us. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. If you do use Apple, rate the show five stars and write a nice review. New episodes are released Wednesday late afternoons. It's a special edition of the podcast this week as Larry Brooks and Ron Duguay team up for an interview with Rangers legend Brad Park. But now, here he is, your host of Up in the Blue Seats, number 10, Ron So today I really look forward to our show. I will get a chance to chat with a good friend of mine, longtime friend, uh, Brad Park. Uh, him and I didn't play together as New York Rangers. I came in after him. I heard a lot about him. Then I got to play against him. And then I had the pleasure of playing with him in Detroit. What a man. I mean, what a hockey genius the way he played the game, the way he was able, I think it was 27, 28. So in my prime as a hockey player, I didn't realize I had a lot more to learn about the game and being around Brad as a defenseman, he just really taught me a lot about how to analyze the game, how to move on the ice. And it made me a better scorer in Detroit. And then uh, in my last year, I had the pleasure of having Brad as my coach. You just saw the brightness of this man, the calmness, uh, the caring. And so today we're going to get to talk to him. I want to revisit what it was like for him to be a New York Ranger and want to chat with him on his thoughts on having his jersey retired. All right, Ron. So we asked Twitter about questions for Brad Park, but we also got questions for you as well. And the first one from Rock1193, ROC1193, is why did you wear number 44 in your second stint with the Rangers? Well, the simple answer to that is that number 10 was not available. Pierre LaRousse was wearing number 10, and uh, he was a longtime NHLer. He had come in from Montreal, had been wearing number 10. And so it was either he was going to offer it to me because I wasn't going to ask him, and I wasn't expecting him to give me number 10. That would have been a big deal for him, a very successful hockey player especially as a New York Ranger. And so after that, who cares? I mean, I could have worn any number. It didn't matter. I was just happy to be in New York. Did it feel the same wearing another number? No, going back to New York? No, I didn't feel like myself. I didn't play like myself, but I didn't like not wearing number 10. It wasn't the same. So you were going to ask him, hey, you want to, here's a thousand bucks if you give me number 10, Pierre. No, I had a good relationship with Pierre and it was never brought up. I was going to wait on him. And if he didn't say anything, I wasn't going to say anything. I had respect for him and and that was the thing with the nhl for older players you always had a respect for them not that he's much older than me at that point i was just happy to be back in new york more than anything else all right from at coach johnny g you and brad were both traded between original six teams what was that like I don't know if being traded to an original team made a difference. It was like Brad when he got a trade away from New York. It was devastating. He said he cried. I didn't cry, probably because I was expecting it because my last year was not good with Herb Brooks and I had a sense that something might happen. Getting traded to Detroit, I didn't know a whole lot about Detroit. All I knew was there's another team in the NHL that really, really wanted me. I had a call from uh, Nick Polano, who's the coach, and Danny Kerr was a player. And they really wanted me there. They wanted to change things around. They hadn't made 
the playoffs. And so I went there with a positive mindset. But originally I thought, I'm really going to miss New York, but I'm still getting to play hockey. And so it was life-changing for me. That whole summer I got into a new fitness program. I changed my diet. And so everything, and I tell people this, it's all a mindset. You know, it's all on you look on how you look at things. Uh, if you stay negative, it will be negative. You go positive, things will things will happen the positive way. All right. From Jim Bro eighty three, were you guys roomies when you played in Detroit? So what was what was your living situation? Um, I believe it was in my second year pro with the New York Rangers, where I really discovered that, and this was all new to me, the roommate thing, that I did not like having a roommate. I, I just felt, and I went and explained this to the coach at the time. I said, look, at nothing against any of my teammates. And, and my first roommates were Kenny Hodge, lights out at 10 o'clock, right? <laughs> and I'm getting ready to go out. Lights are going off on the road at 10 o'clock. This ain't going to work. And then I had Nick Fotillo. Well, Nick Fotillo, the big prankster he was always up to something and i could never sleep that well with nikki so i just went to the coach again nothing against those two players or any, any other player i asked coach listen can i have my own room because it helps me to have a good seven hours sleep that wouldn't be interrupted by anything because some guys like to stay up they like to watch tv like to read books there's lights on and that was disrupting to me so i i pleaded my case with the coach can i have that and within my second year i had my own room and then it came part of my contract so that by, by the time i got to Detroit, Detroit. Uh, and I think the same thing goes for Brad Park. He had his own room. He won his own room because there comes a time that you're with the players all the time. And I think it's okay to have your own quiet private time. And that comes at late at night, have a good night's sleep, get up in the morning, and they're all excited about seeing each other. All right, last question before you and Larry Brooks interview Brad Park. And this one is obviously a joke, but it is kind of funny and I want to hear a little bit more about it. From at Festus Plague, were you disappointed that your cameo on the original BH 90210 did not result in an Emmy. Well, not enough time as far as TV time. I did have a lot of fun doing that because I got to meet the crew. Later on, I got to play some uh, celebrity hockey with some of the guys from 90210. Jason Priestley being one of them. No, I didn't get enough airtime and I would have liked to have gotten more because once you get a taste of doing a little bit of TV or movie, it's addicting. And I really have enjoyed it with the little bits that I have done. I think before that I had done Ryan's Hope, the soap opera Ryan's Hope. I had done a little bit of that. After meeting Alan Thick, actor, uh, comedian, Canadian Alan Thick, he put me on his sitcom, which was, uh, I think was called Hope and Glorious. So I got a chance to do that. So not enough TV time to get an Emmy. Now let's get into the interview with you, New York Post Ranger beat writer Larry Brooks and Rangers legend Brad Park. My guest today played 17 years in the NHL, former first-round pick, second overall by the New York Rangers, a Hall of Famer, a friend, Brad Park. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. How are you? I'm doing well. I uh, and and for our listeners, uh, I think they're all curious to how we're uh, our lifestyle right now. And I guess I need to ask you, uh, where are you? Are you based out of Florida as I am? And what is life like for you right now? Well, it's pretty. Quiet. I think like everybody is pretty quiet. I'm in Florida. The weather's good, but it's kind of a lonely existence. Is uh, you know not a whole bunch to do. We've been talking this past week or past two weeks about uh, New York, of course, because our audience is a lot of range fans but we've been talking to change things up because the game's not being played about players of the past players of influence and players that have been honored with their jerseys retired and your name keeps coming up and your biggest supporter out there is Larry Brooks and Larry's on the line now uh, so Larry's been writing about it so I'm gonna let him take it over from here 
Let me first ask you, since uh, since Ronnie mentioned your second overall selection, which actually was part of the news last year when the Rangers got the second overall pick with Kako and the first time since you were selected. But I'm wondering, you're selected in 1966. What was the um, anticipation of the draft then? Obviously, it was nothing like it was like it is now. But when the draft was held, were you sort of sitting by the phone waiting to be contacted did you care whether you were selected first overall second overall i mean what was what was it like back then entering a draft quite honestly i didn't even know there was a draft because they started a draft around 1960 it was a 16-year-old draft the reason was to give the american teams because the um, you know, 99% of the players were Canadian, and the French Canadians would sign the C forms with Montreal, and the English Canadians would want to sign a C form with the Toronto Maple Leafs. So they started this 16-year-old draft in order to give the four American teams uh, a shot at players and stop the you know the players from signing C forms for 100 bucks. That way, they were going to feed their players to their junior teams and develop them through their system. But what happened was that was the last year of a 16-year-old draft because they realized that they still didn't know what they were getting, so they were going to move the draft to 20. And the way I found out about it was uh, my dad uh, bought the Toronto Telegram and said, uh, hey, you got drafted. And uh, really? Didn't really think of it. I just finished my first year of junior, and it wasn't really a big thing. I thought, you know, because I was playing for the Toronto Marlboros, uh, which is owned by the Maple Leafs, that that would probably be the direction I would go. So I really didn't even know there was, uh, you know, a draft or there was no no ceremony no nothing going on that front and jake brown here brad appreciate you coming on the show or answering some questions from twitter as well from slogan 4000 on twitter what was your reaction when you learned you were coming to play in new york and msg and what adjustments did you make living in the big apple well the, the interesting thing is uh, even when i uh, naturally my last two years of junior uh, because they changed the draft, I didn't have to go to Kitchener, uh, which was a junior team owned by the Rangers. I was allowed to stay in Toronto and finish my junior career. But I started paying attention to you know the roster of the New York Rangers and who they had and what players and things like that. But in those days, I saw guys that I you know when I broke in, in junior, I thought were better than me, and uh, not realizing that I was developing, and they didn't make the National Hockey League. And so when I went to uh, training camp in, in uh, Kitchener, I really was and, you know, expecting to make the team. I was hoping, you know, to, you know, to work my way in through the minors. And uh, after about three or four days, my, my father came in to watch practice. He was a couple hours away. And he said, what do you think? And I said, they're, they're not bigger. They're not stronger. They don't skate faster. And they, they don't shoot harder. But boy, are they smarter. And it was at that point that I really knew I had to get smarter and learn, uh, you know, how to play the game, how to play it at a higher level. Uh, it wasn't until, uh, you know, I hung in through for all the exhibition games that, you know, hey, and, and held my own that I really started to appreciate that maybe, you know, it might be something I could do at that level. Brad, so I came in after you in New York and people asked me what was it like leaving Sudbury and then entering Madison Square Garden wearing a New York Ranger jersey. What was it like on my emotion? And I always tell people I embraced it. I loved it. It brought the best out of me. What was it like for you 
to play at the Garden and playing in front of 18,000 people? Well, I think, you know, the only thing I could have compared to, and you know, I really can't compare it to, was, you know, playing in Toronto, going to a couple of Leaf games and playing junior there. The crowd would, like, be sitting on their hands, and there wasn't really much noise. And then we had an exhibition game in uh, New York against Montreal, and I walked into that building and skated out on the ice, and I looked around, and I said, wow, isn't this something? This is amazing. You know, you just, you know, felt like you were in you know, you wanted to be in tune with the crowd. The only thing is the crowd wanted you to do things that you probably shouldn't be doing. <laughs> but you, you, you just kind of could get caught up in it really quickly. Yeah, well, I was actually at that exhibition game. <laughs> but, so your, your, your first year, you paired with Harry Howell, is that right? And then, I'm, and I, and then you were telling me the other day when, when we were talking about the 1970 um, final game, you were telling me you were paired with Arnie Brown then. But who were your regular partners through your time in New York? Um, I know you played a little bit with Dale Rolfe after he came, but who were, who, who were the guys who you partnered with uh, primarily? Well, I started with, uh, in training camp, part of my contract request was uh, my father, we made the request to Mill Francis that I would get paired with Harry Howell at training camp. And, and Harry was great. He was just a wonderful guy. And, and he you know, he talked to me and he, He'd teach me things. And so I had him through training camp. And then uh, they sent me to Buffalo for a couple of months. And then they brought me back. And at that time, Harry's back went out. Because it went out, uh, he had to go get a spinal fusion. I got to play more. And he was playing with Arnie Brown. So Arnie Brown became my partner. And by the time uh, next year started, Harry Harry had moved on. So Arnie Brown was my partner for about three, three, three and a half, four years. You know, I would switch sides. I'd play the left side, the right side, depending on, uh, you know, what the need was. Then when we, we got Dale Roth for my last number of years, until he broke his ankle, he was my regular partner. Another question from Twitter, Brad, from Kelly underscore Kilcrease. Do you consider yourself a Ranger or a Bruin? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, uh, I guess I got the Northeast locked up, but I, I kind of joke. I say, it depends which side of Hartford I'm on. If I'm on the southern part of Hartford, I'm a Ranger. If I'm on the northern side, north of Hartford, I'm a Bruin. So I think they're two great cities. They got the, the, the tremendous fans in both places. And, uh, it, you know, it didn't matter what game, what night, either building you walked into, there was electricity. New York was, uh, you know, probably my first love because I had that ranger crest tattooed on my heart brad going back to new york as a defenseman when you looked up front and you had uh roger bear jean Rattel, vic hadfield as a line how would you describe them as teammates rod and ratty left-hand center right-hand shooter and as i look at you know great playmakers and scorers uh you know you had trotje blasje left-hand center right-hand shooter gretzky curry left-hand center right-hand shooter uh, lamaire lafleur left-hand center right-hand shooter you can go down the line mcdonald and sittler left-hand center right-hand shooter but the one thing about ratty is because he has such a straight blade his backhand pass was as good as his forehand so you know vic uh, had a more powerful shot than rod and rod probably had a better release and so they were dynamite in moving the puck and pulling the trigger and john rattel was just a, an exquisite playmaker and every time i would get on the ice with them i i'd be looking for that opportunity to to make it a four-man rush because i knew they weren't going to lose the puck I wanted to ask you, 1972 finals. You you uh, you you wind up rolling on the ice in a in a fight with Bobby Orr. 
in game four. Had you ever fought with Orr before? Had, and I'm not sure, did you ever did you ever fight with him again? And uh, what was the, the um, surrounding uh, events to that fight that, that I do not recall? Well, that's the only time that uh, Bobby and I ever got into that. And uh, it was in the playoffs and Bobby was coming across center ice and he cut to the middle and I was coming from the other side and I threw the hip at him and he saw me at the last second and he jumped out of the way and as he spun when he jumped his stick went just above the top of my head and I was convinced that he tried to swing his stick at me and I dropped him and went after him. Bobby ended up just tackling me around the waist and uh, we ended up on the bottom and I was punching him in the, kind of the back of the head but I wasn't doing any damage and uh, I said nah this is this, this is enough. And that was the only time that we ever, you know, we ever, you know, went at each other. On that front, Brad, uh, you know, the game has changed. There's not as much real fighting as there used to be. And from Stewie Cookie on Twitter, what is this era? What do you think this era? What do you think it needs? Uh, what what from this era do you think the game needs? And what do you wish uh, that you had from today's game in your era? I think the one thing that I think they made, you know, I think the instigator rule was brought in because of uh, Philadelphia actually bringing in premeditated fighting. And that was the reason for the instigator rule. And I think that the penalty, rather than uh, do that, I would like them to see them captain minutes. For example, using a number, if you got, uh, you know, if a tough guy got 200 minutes in penalties, give him a 10 game suspension. If he gets 250, right, he's gone for the season in the playoffs. And that gives you the, um, the ability to continue to fight, but it takes out the unnecessary things. And the idea is that no instigator. I mean, usually if somebody's going after somebody because they, they're retaliating to a cheap shot. In, in our day, the smaller guys didn't cheap shot you uh, because you'd get five for fighting and they'd get five for receiving. I keep thinking about you and I playing together in Detroit, and um, which for me was a good experience. And most players, you ask any player, and they want to be able to end their career on a good note. You go into Detroit. Was that enjoyable for you to be able to end your career in Detroit? I would think, well, you know how difficult it was. You know, it was a coaching situation in Detroit. And I had another year in my contract, but I didn't want to go back there because, uh, you know, it wasn't enjoyable because of the coach. The guys were great. You know, the guys were great. Uh, when when we went there, Dukes, uh, Detroit hadn't made the playoffs in 17 years, and we made the playoffs. And then uh, the second year, they hadn't made it back-to-back in, in 17 years, and we made the playoffs. That was good because, you know, we were doing something. And uh, I went to Detroit because it was going to be a, a more financial stability situation for my uh, my family. Uh, I could see myself in the Boston when I was in Boston that I was, you know, starting to get phased out. wasn't necessarily consulted about it. And, uh, you know, it's hard to make an old war horse a cheerleader. So going to Detroit, you know, I had the opportunity to, to play a lot more. Um, what was it like coaching? Uh, Ronnie, and what well, actually, and what was the experience of coaching like for you? You take over in the middle of the season. Did you enjoy it? How how did that fit with your personality? Well, I enjoyed coaching. I'm you know, I'm a teacher at heart. I learned to hate three words as a coach. A guy'd come off the ice, you'd walk down to talk to him, and you'd get just get to him. He'd turn at you and look up, and he said, "Well, I thought." So, as a coach, those were three words I hated. But I didn't mind it. Uh, you know, it was the last place team that I took over, and I joked around that I was good enough to keep it there. But, you know, two weeks after I took over, Steve Reisman broke his collarbone, and he was the key on the line with Ron, with Ronnie and, and John O'Grodnick. So 
uh, losing that kind of you know power firepower. He was in his third year. Uh, you know, it was a devastating blow. But I but I liked it. I really did. And uh, tried to bring in more systems. Our power play was very uh, very strong. We operated uh, in the three months that I coached. We operated about 24.5 percent. And and Ron was a big part of that. Brad, a uh, two part question here. The final two questions that I'll have here from Twitter, but from LHG39. And listen, it's a topic we've been talking about in retiring jerseys the last couple of weeks. He says, I am personally bothered by the fact that the Rangers have not retired Brad's number for him, seeing as you were the best player on the team for many years. How do you feel about about that, and does it bother you, or is it not a big deal? Well, I, I think it's an honor that anybody would welcome, and, and I would too. You know, it's not something that I, I can control. Um, you know, uh, like I said, when I went to New York, it was the, the first team that I went to. Uh, love New York. I cried when I got traded. Uh, I thought I was going to play most of my career, or if not all my career, in New York. So it was such a shock. And then, you know, trying to be a professional, but once I went to Boston, I got mad. I got mad that uh, I wasn't wanted. And uh, I had some really good years in Boston. Uh, you know, I went to a very stable organization, if you call Don Cherry stable. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And also Harry Sin is the general manager, and New York started making a lot of changes, you know, with Ferguson and Freddie Sherrill, and then they brought in a bunch of other guys after that, and it seemed like the management in New York went through an unstable period. In that sense, that, that I was happy uh, where I ended up, and uh, to this day, I'm still upset that I had to leave. All right, last one for me from Nick Ionora on the on the same front. Do you expect to get your number two in the Raptors and at MSG next to Brian Leach? He always felt it should be there next to Hatfield. Field and Bathgate. Well, I appreciate. It. I mean, I would love to, and everything like that. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, at the end of Leachy's career, he comes to Boston, and uh, and what number does he get? Twenty-two, which was my number. And I went to Leachy, and I said, Brian, you got to quit following me and taking my number. So uh, you know, but he's a wonderful guy, and it, it would be an honor to be up there with him. Brad, with uh, looking at your career, superstar. Ranger fans loved you there. Boston fans loved you there. You're part of the Hockey Hall of Fame. With all that said, are there any regrets when you look back at your career about anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, I think we all have uh, some regrets. I mean, you can say that, you know, I never won a Stanley Cup, you know, and uh, that that's regrettable. Uh, I don't lose sleep over it, but uh, it, it's something I would have liked to do. Uh, you know, we didn't, uh, today's thing, they move guys around at, at the trade deadline. And, uh, you know, I call it at times a rent-a-cup program where guys have a shot to do that. Uh, you know, we never had that opportunity. We never released guys or traded guys because they made too much money. It was more of a trade because of their ability or their personality to the team. It wasn't a money situation. I, I do have one one uh, other question. When you go to Boston, it just happens to work out that your first games there were, were the first games that, that Orr played that season. And you wound up playing 10 games with him. And those are the only 10 games he played that year. And I guess his last 10 for Boston, right? What was it like playing with him and he had he had 18 points in those 10 games and you had nine so what was it like playing with him did you play with him at even strength at all or was it or were you were you on the uh, point together what was what was the situation there and i guess my follow-up to that would be which were the best teams you think you played on the early rangers teams or the bruins teams of the of the late 70s that also went to the finals and and they went you went twice in a row well 
well, your first part is we went to Boston. Uh, Bobby was just coming back from knee surgery, and they're they were in last place. We uh, we did not play a uh, regular shift together. We would play on the power play together. They wanted me to uh, to kill most of the penalties to take the wear and tear off of him because of his knee. But on the power play with John Rattel up front and John Busick, an unbelievable player and. and could thread and score, uh, you know. And Wayne Cashman, in those 10 games, the power play was over 50%. So it was, it was like five guys, two cannons at the point, and five guys that uh, could thread the puck and uh, would never panic. And it was uh, either Bobby or myself was very capable of carrying the puck up and gaining the blue line to set up under control when we were there. And at times, uh, Don Cherry would yell at us, would one of you please shoot? And because we were passing back and forth, trying to you know disrupt their blocks. Uh, so the, the power play was sensational. Second part of that question: the best puck handling, scoring team was the Rangers in the early 70s. The biggest, toughest, meanest sons of bees in the valley was the Bruins in the late 70s under Don Cherry. It was entirely two different teams. All right. And uh, the Rangers is more fuel willing, probably, uh, you know, to a person who's a um, hockey purist, they would love the Ranger team. To the common blue collar guy who wants to see, you know, a team that gives no quarter and takes no quarter, that would be the Bruins of the late late 70s. I mean, I was on that team that where the Bruins went into the stands, and uh, you know, it was, uh, I mean, it was incredible. But that was the mentality of that team. It, it was a scary team to play against. And then uh, the Rangers in the early 70s was a team that could embarrass you really quickly. Out of uh, great respect that I have for you, having played with you, I had you as my coach. I describe you as having very high hockey IQ. You're probably the smartest hockey guy that I know. Uh, having said that, and thinking about today's game, because hopefully it'll get back going here in August, if you're Gary Bettman, is there anything that you would change about today's game as you're watching today's game? Yeah, I think uh, number one, let's start in goals. The, the, is the goalies are bigger now than ever before. The equipment is oversized. It's much more protective. But they also have a round crease where a goalie can get a five to six foot free ride on uh, every screenshot, which in our day with a smaller crease, if somebody was standing in front of the goalie, the heels of the goalie, like Bernie Braun, his heels would be on the goal line, couldn't get out. So if they're not going to take the crease back to where it was, right, then make the nets a little bit bigger. And, you know, I, you know I'm talking maybe six inches. That's the first change I would I would make. You know, right now, it's, uh, and that would, that would give people more opportunity to want to shoot the puck rather than jam the puck in the crease and try and jam it in and come around and wrap around. You'll see more guys willing to pull the trigger, and that makes it more exciting. How would you do in today's game? Brad Park, in his prime, great shape. You've been training hard like everyone else. How would you do in today's game? I think I would do fine and uh, because uh, I was very good with the puck. And I had a lot of poise and patience. And uh, if you come at me 100 miles an hour, 
I'm going to beat you cold turkey. You would have to, I believe in a puck control game. So I would, you know, I'd actually slow the game down, which would frustrate many guys. And uh, I think that that's, uh, that art, if you look at the guys that are the most successful people in today's game are guys that are good with a puck. And I, and I was good with a puck. Well, Brad, I really appreciate your time. We're going to end it now. I know our viewers are going to appreciate this interview today. And hopefully we'll talk again. There'll come a time where we're going to see your jersey retired at, at Madison Square Garden. So thanks for your time. We wish you well, my friend. All right, Ron. I thank you. Larry, always a pleasure. You guys take care and stay safe. Same to you. Same to you, Brad. Stay safe. That's a wrap for episode 19 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for producing the show. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen. If using Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars and write a nice review, please. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at RonDuguet10. Thanks for joining us. Stay inside and stay safe. Chat with you all next week.